Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, now ready for departure. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're entering the vacation kingdom of the world. There's enough land here to hold all of the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. We call it Epcot. Will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Taking you back to the vacation kingdom of the world. The way it was and the way it is in your memories. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. This is episode 36, Polynesian Dreams. I'm your host, Todd McCartney, and tonight we'll be taking you back to the development and thought behind the Polynesian Resort. This is actually part one of a two-part series on the Polynesian Resort, because we know there's so much to talk about, and so many of you uh, have fond memories of that and really want to dive into all the details. But before we get to that, as always, sitting in with me tonight uh, on this cold end of a blizzard we're having here in New Hampshire is uh, Mr. JT Kuja from Ohio. Any snow out there, JT? Anything? Uh, just frigid temps. We're in the single digits, but not a lot of snow. So we're, we're hanging in there. All right. All right. We got about another 12 inches today on top of the six Jeez. or seven we already had. So. so we could lose you at any time. It, it, if the lights flicker, I'm gone. How's going <laughs> to? Until I get on. out there and get the generator going. So sitting in his shorts, probably in a nice green short sleeve shirt from Tampa, Florida, Mr. Hal Bowers. How are you this evening, Hal? Tonight, I get to really give a real solid aloha there we are tonight is tonight is the episode doing well it's 50 degrees here in tampa so it's you know cold but not as cold as it is as it is in other places yep. so now how you've been preparing for this episode probably for about i don't know oh, nine and a half years maybe yeah all, even all before my we life met? yeah probably so my entire <laughs> life now it's, i'll tell you it's been a good solid three four days because there's some things i wanted to get into i wanted to put an order in my head for myself development wise because it's had such a weird interesting uh development so it's been a pretty pretty solid research week for me awesome awesome we're looking forward to it and from the city of brotherly love is mr brian p miles where the christmas decorations are probably starting to come down brian are we Uh, i took the first few things down but uh they stay up until the feast of the three kings the epiphany yeah which is uh this saturday so happy new year from the city of brotherly love to all of our listeners and all of you fellas thank you very much brian yeah happy new year to everybody so let's get this episode kicked off and as always we go into comments and corrections and uh, making sure that we've got things right so last month, Brian, you had mentioned uh, the song, the first song that Andrew McArdle sang um, was from the Broadway uh, show Cats called Memory, but yes. uh, that hadn't debuted into 1981, so we did a little bit of digging, and this person was correct. Uh, the song was actually The Way We Were from the 1973 film of the same name. Who's, so, yeah, and who's, yeah, that's right, and the opening line is Memories. right 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 <laughs> so, so yeah so that that was where the confusion came from we got a lot of stuff like 85 percent correct as we're trying to talk about 70s yeah. theater in, we, in that we, episode there, there was a whole section we cut out where we were completely down on andrew lloyd weber 
hole or something and talking. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's just wrong. <laughs> just wrong. So we, we, we admit, we admit. So uh, appreciate Ben West for writing in and, and making that correction there. I, I do also want to thank all of the people who tweeted and Facebooked and messaged us in some form of communication mm. to let us know that they agreed uh, they wanted to wash their eyes out with something after <laughs> having subjected themselves to watching that Christmas <laughs> the, special. The Emergency best tweet. Eye wash. I forget who it was from, but the best tweet, I believe it was Christmas Day, Somebody said, I'm subjecting my family to this. And there's a picture of like four of them crowded around the large screen TV. And on it is shields and the rest of the family just looked all glaze eyed. It was it it really it's it's probably a delight to watch it with our director's commentary running through it at at certain points. Maybe somebody can edit that special together. We we should do dropping in dropping in our commentary. Yeah, if not, maybe next year what we'll do is we'll do a riff track version and release that. That would be fun. Wouldn't that be great? Just we'll just get a bowl of popcorn and some drinks and. Just see what happened. Then you can imagine like little JT's head, you know, sitting there with the with the earphones on in front of the television, right? <laughs> That'd be perfect. That's right. All right. So Ben, thanks and uh, to you for writing in and as well as everybody else who wrote in about last month's episode. I know we rag on a lot of those uh, television specials and uh, for their time, they were, you know, what people wanted, but um, they certainly give us a good chuckle nowadays. All right, so the next item here we have is uh, how you un- you've uncovered some really detailed information about the Japan Pavilion. And uh, while I know we're going to probably dig into a, uh, a deeper what never became of World Showcase, you know, pavilions such as Africa and the famed German Rhine cruise and all that, but you... You uncovered some really interesting information about the two-level Meet the World Pavilion. This was a really neat find. And again, I, we have to shout out to Ted Lindhart uh, mm-hmm. and his DisneyDocs.net. Our, because, our biggest fan. Yeah. <laughs> he right. has, um, to describe who Ted is, is like he is a fan, uh, but he is a fan with a bank account. And when uh, some rare documentation comes up for auction, uh, as it recently did uh, with a bunch of items that once belonged to Harper Goff, uh, Ted Ted opened up the purse strings and uh, and made a lot of purchases at the auction. But the really great thing that he does is he takes photos of everything and he puts it on his website, so you can actually go through his stuff and see you know what's what. So in in the process of of just trying to you know uh, get my facts straight for for this episode, I started going through his site, and lo and behold, uh, there was a diagram there for the ver- for the mythical meet the world show uh which we've always heard was supposed to run as part of the the jap the japan pavilion in the castle um behind the the main area so if you're going by today's standards um this would be kind of where the um where the cute uh display is the kawaii if if you if you go past the department store on your right there's a bridge across a body of water it's almost like a moat around the castle that's it and uh and and so that would have been the entrance to where the ride was so so what we found out we'd we'd always thought like oh it must have been like a you know a carousel we knew it was a carousel theater i think we probably kind of knew that the concept was that the stages were on the outside and the carousel was in the center um, but we heard all kinds of wild stories and rumors like the building was built like two feet too small so they couldn't put the thing in it and that's why they, they never opened it. Um, but in in this pile of documents was a very detailed layout 
Uh, and the surprising thing that we found out that that the carousel show was actually intended to be on the second floor uh, in that building. Now, now that building was actually built and it's used as a woodworking shop. It has been since 1982. Uh, so, so the actual ride, I'm sorry, the show building was constructed but never used for the show. Um, in front of the way that the way that this layout is set up, um, the way that the thing would have worked is that there would have been an additional smaller building kind of in front of that castle thing and it would have had stairs in it so you could have come up the stairs to go up to the second floor and then walk across uh, a second bridge on top of the one that you walk across today to go over that moat uh, and i actually looked and found an old you know epcot postcard of concept art and you can actually see this second floor bridge like in that artwork which just kills me because we've had this stuff in front of us for years and we just didn't know what we were looking at and it was there the entire time um the you could also follow um the grade around the uh the five-sided pagoda and up by the uh the little restaurant up there uh and you would have been able to approach it from that side too so if you're wheelchair or you just wanted to take a ramp to get up there you you could have done it that way um so you would enter the uh the pre-show up on the second floor kind of in that same location but one floor up from where the the cute exhibit is and then you would go into the show um, which was the full Meet the World show, um, similar to what ran, well, actually exactly what ran at Tokyo Disneyland, but in English. Uh, and then when you go into the exit area, it was supposed to look like Ginza at night. And you would then go sort of down a couple of grades, probably to a staircase or some kind of ramp to go underneath the ride. And underneath the ride, uh, they had exhibits space set up for like JL Airlines and uh, um, what would become Panasonic. Uh, I can't remember the name of the company now. It's like Mitsutaki or something. I, Sorry, I blew that one. But um, there'd, there'd be exhibit displays for what I assume would be the sponsors that would have sponsored the, uh, the show that was upstairs. And based on all of this, the the conclusion that I can now come to, because we know that the figures and the sets and stuff for Meet the World were actually built in Florida in central shops um, at the same time that uh, a bunch of other construction was going on. So I, I think they had great uh, thoughts about how they could go and get sponsors for the show. And uh, the thing just fell through. And uh, I believe the story is that um, the person that sponsored it in Japan, and I can't remember who it was now, which is going to kill me. Uh, it was one of the leaders of Mitsubishi or something. Uh, was a Japanese history buff, and he wanted a show similar to the Hall of Presidents uh, in Japan. So they basically took it, and he sponsored it. So they shipped it over to Japan and installed it in Tokyo Disneyland. Uh, there was a thought that they would build two of them, but uh, probably just from a money thing and with Epcot trying to get finished in time. I think they just decided to drop it, and uh, that's kind of how it faded away. So none of those props were actually in Dreamflight, that little J Japanese sequence, right? <laughs> huh, no, but you know, they probably did a lot of research. Yeah, they probably uh, had during that time period, so they probably had some stuff to pull on. All right, well, thanks for that, How And uh, JT, let's run out to the listener mailbag. Uh, what do we got in there this month? All right, well, pretty good uh, month on the, the mail here. Uh, first one's from Brian Elias. Uh, he says, Hey all, just want to say that I love the podcast and it makes my day when a new episode pops up into his feed. 
I know the feeling, Brian. Not necessarily with ours, but with others. I, I know what you're saying. I uh, like the feeling that it pops up because I know my edits are done for the that's month. That's <laughs> true. I guess you have that, yeah. Um, <laughs> he says, had a couple questions for you that I'd love to get answered if you have the time. Of course we do. He's been curious about the future core that used to walk around Epcot. As a former trumpet player, I was always really impressed by these guys, but only had vague memories of seeing them perform. He'd love to know more about them and what ultimately led to them going away. I literally have never heard of it. I've heard of it, but I don't know what this is. So what do you guys got on the future core? Well, it was a marching band, and it was a marching band because while Disney had built theme parks before Epcot, it uh, had built Magic Kingdom-style theme parks, and they all had marching bands. So naturally, some of what they did when they opened up Epcot was just take things they knew how to do and apply them to their new park. And in this case, in the new park, it was a... It was a band that had uh, not particularly futuristic-looking uniforms, but different uniforms from the Main Street uh, marching band, and uh, they marched around Future World. Uh, in fact, one of our earliest film footages of Epcot that we have uh, has some shots of them marching by near Spaceship Earth. Yeah, right under Gateway Gifts, I believe, right now. Yeah. Boy, okay, so it was just a... How, Howard probably got to see them up close and personal a few times. I think oh, I yeah. have some video in 86, two of them playing with it. Really, really great band. They they, they were there for, for years. A very, very long time. Um, they actually released a CD uh, under the name N-Corps that you could get uh, locally in Orlando. Well, they couldn't sell it at... I, can't, I don't know if they ever sold it at the park, but I, I think they, uh, they, uh, they sold the CD called the... The Future of Corpse. So uh, they actually have a website still. You can go to futurecorpse.net. Oh, no, you can't. It's dead. Never mind. <laughs> Forget it. <laughs> dead like the future. Corpse. Yes. Anyways, they were active from December 1st of 1982 to May 13th of 2006. So they were there a really, really long time. Uh, and I'm sure that long? Yeah. And I'm sure members came in and out as, as times, you know, times went on. Boy, um, they could but, have been right up there with the, uh, the mariachi band. Yeah, they were a staple. They were really famous. I, I think the thing that really separated them from other, uh, you know, just marching band ensembles is they in, they used a lot of jazz in their in their sound. Um, so they would do like um, some of the, their very famous things. They did a great version of the Jetsons theme song. Um, and they do like Birdland and a, a lot of jazz standards. So that was a little different um, from, you know, I guess your typical like small marching band. Some of their music is ingrained in my head because I remember that the video my dad took in 1986 just had some great stuff. on. My dad was a drummer, so he, he got a kick out of watching the drum line. And uh, I know he, he video, videotaped a lot of it pretty cool stuff so yeah even now when we went to do our tour through epcot they had us not them but like a very similar band because i remember mm -hmm. we were trying to talk and all of a sudden it was like bah, 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 
then we actually had to wait for them to finish before we could say anything. Exactly. Well, but uh, but I also remember back then. I don't believe there were any stages in Future World. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's you true. know they they eventually now convert uh, part of the fountain area to the Christmas time stage for well, and that's kind of become a permanent stage. On top of it, don't forget what the crowds that you used to see at Epcot. Everybody was waiting outside with no entertainment, so having them yeah. run around from pavilion to pavilion and play a little music was certainly uh, certainly very welcome. Sure, sure. So, what else uh, we got there, JT? Well, um, adding on to Brian's email, I thought this was fitting. He said uh, he's kind of in the mood for a Holy Grail video to come out, and he wants to know about the Wave Machine footage. All right. Well, we released a Holy Grail video today. Not the Wave Machine, but we did find we had a really interesting piece of film, actually. Uh, the first thing on it was a photo shoot that the Ford Motor Company did at Walt Disney World. Now, normally you'd think uh, it's not that interesting, but when we lined up some of the scenes of this film of them doing the photo shoot, um, they're nearly identical in a couple shots to what was actually in the advertisements that ran in magazines. So it's a really, really cool piece. Uh, after that day was done, whoever did this photo shoot took the camera into the park and into the Magic Kingdom and on his way out or on his way in, I forget exactly where, he shot footage of the Eastern Winds uh, Chinese junk that used to sail from the Polynesian. Uh, and it was cruising right along right in front of the entrance to the magic kingdom so um we'd love to get some on on ship footage uh, of it sailing but here it certainly is a piece of footage of it moving under its own power which is which is really cool and as far as we know it's the only footage out there yeah, so far of anything so, I mean, cer- certainly nothing that disney ever put out had it on it right uh the, so We'll see. Now, in terms of the Holy Grail of the Wave Machine in action, that certainly is a Holy Grail. Um, I will just say that we are working on some leads. Um, no promises, but we're going to do what we can. I, I think it's fair to say, because I think we shared some of it, but maybe not all of it, between the last Destination D or the one before it, uh, and then the first-hand stories of people we've talked to that have been a part of it and the, the bits of it that have ended up in books. We've got a pretty comprehensive knowledge of the wave machine and when it operated and why it was put there and plans to expand it and create a water park uh, next to where the Polynesians are rather where the Grand Floridian's wedding pavilion is now. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff out there. Uh, the, the only missing piece right now is is the footage of it, and once right. we have that, uh, there'll be might, might be a little wave machine mini episode or something. There we see. There we go. And if you're if you're sorry that the wave machine's gone, you still have it because what it became was Typhoon Lagoon. So yeah, yeah, a lot of the concepts around developing it uh, were were moved into uh, Typhoon Lagoon exactly. and the wave pool that, that that exists there. That's right. So Brian, thanks for writing in, and uh, we'll let you know when we got that. Next Holy Grail ready. For sure. Thanks, Brian. All right. Uh, next message we got was from Gary. He says, Hi, guys. Not exactly park-related, but I was wondering if you had any info about Epcot Magazine. I have a may, may have appeared on it as a child, but never got to see it. My family even subscribed to the Disney Channel once. We were able to to able to get that in our area, but it was too late. I've seen intros and small videos on YouTube. Have you seen the show? Know much about it? Keep up the good work. Gary. Hello, Gary. So Epcot Magazine was a 
daily digest, half an hour or an hour, depending on when you were watching it and when it was running, uh, that ran on the Disney Channel from the day the uh, channel went on the air. It was one of the first programs until 1986. So it ran from 1983 to 1986. At that time, Disney Channel was a pay channel. Uh, it was not included in your basic cable packages. Uh, you had to subscribe every month to it like you did with HBO or something like that. It was hosted by a guy named Michael Young, uh, who would be known to some of our uh, listeners as the host of Kids Are People 2, which is was his job immediately before uh, he did Epcot Magazine for three years for, for the Disney Corporation. Uh, so we don't have a library of them available to us. We don't have your specific episode, uh, if you even knew what it was. But we do have behind-the-scenes footage on one of our very own films. So the film that Michael Young appears in that we restored was called the uh, article is called "Come Visit the Epcot Center of 1982," uh, and he appears around the three-minute mark, just around 301, 302, somewhere in there. Uh, you can take a look at it. and the. Um, uh, the narrator of the film, whoever put this together, was a, uh, an amateur an amateur photographer put this together, but the narrator even calls it out that it was Michael Young filming something there, and you can kind of see some of the cameras and uh, other equipment and stuff. So kind of an, a neat neat little thing there. So yeah. So so I'll give you some of the behind the the behind the scenes story of like how the show came together. So uh, so. Disney Channel was looking to program. It's like they originally ran, I think, something like 16 hours of programming a day. So despite that there was stuff that was in the vault, there was also a need for some original content to run on the channel as well. So there were things like, you know, there was a Winnie the Pooh show and uh, like Dumbo Circus. There were a couple like live action things that they made. There were plans for a Dreamfinder show, but unfortunately that never happened. Um, but someone got the idea to do to do this Epcot magazine show, and, and I think what happened is the show was created by a company called Bill Hiller Productions. And for those of you who kind of remember the 1970s and the 1980s, I've actually talked about this show before. Um, he was actually a TV executive, and he created a show called PM Magazine um, when... Um, when the U.S. actually deregulated network television, Brian, here's another deregulation story, they actually forced the local stations to be able to get the 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock hour back, um, yes. where the major networks had taken that on. So um, so they were looking for, the networks were looking for programming to put in there, like game shows. So like that's when Wheel of Fortune made the shift from like a daytime show until an evening show. Um, but there was also this innovation in, uh, VC in actual like, uh, video recording for news gathering because before everything was done for, with film. So suddenly now production could be a lot cheaper because videotape existed. Uh, and, and what this guy did is he was working for a company called group W productions and he figured if I got a bunch of different stations together in different markets like Baltimore and Boston and San Francisco and Philadelphia was one, uh, and each had them do like little 10 or 15 minutes, you know, or maybe seven minute segments. It's like he could batch those together and send them all out uh, to run nightly on all of the markets that were part of this thing. So he got this little syndication network together uh, and he had uh, basically you could sign on uh, as a station to either just run the program or provide content for it too. 
So people like Matt Lauer and Nancy Glass and Lisa Gibbons and Tom Bergeron got their start on PM Magazine uh, doing bits for this. And, and that's where they kind of cut their teeth when, when they were in their 20s. So, uh, so this Bill Hiller guy ran this very successfully for, for a couple of years and made Group W a boatload of money and I think wanted to get a little bigger piece of the pie from them. And so he, he asked for more and they were like, nah. So he quit. And then he started his own production company and basically tried to replicate the same model of content that was done on PM Magazine on Epcot Magazine. So they do segments on fashion and cooking and all that stuff. Um, it was all filmed at Epcot, but it was basically one of those those sort of like evening news magazine type shows that were very popular until things like Entertainment Tonight and more of the like entertainment news uh, came into vogue in the late 80s and that kind of knocked that all out um so that's that's kind of the story of of i think how it happened and and who was behind that oh and one thing that i forgot bill hiller did after after epcot magazine do you guys remember um wink martindale and no. his game shows oh yeah, yeah of yeah. course tic-tac-toe yeah. tic-tac-toe so, <laughs> so that show was done as a partnership between Wink Martindale and Bill Hiller. So Tic-Tac-Toe and Trivial Pursuit and Boggle and Jumble and all those like game shows that were from them together. And I actually, Wink Martindale actually talked about Bill Hiller in his episode that he did of the uh, Gilbert Gottfried podcast. Uh, he talked about his history and production and things like that and his friendship with Elvis. He was very good friends with Elvis Presley from when they both started out in Memphis and really a fascinating guy, uh, you know, very fascinating guy. All right. Cool. Well, thank you for all the insight on that. Uh, thank you, Gary, for your message. We had a few others, but uh, in the interest of time, we'll save them, see if we can get to them next month. And, of course, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, you want to be read on the air, podcast at retrowdw.com uh, or you can send us a direct message on any social media brian and i just feel like as an asterisk i have to add for the philadelphia area listeners yes pm magazine and philadelphia's evening magazine came from the same place uh, ray murray who hosted evening magazine in philadelphia from 79 to 92 was the original host of pm magazine uh, when it started in 1977 so uh, don't uh, don't confuse the two. They 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 came from the same genesis, same type of uh, program. There we go. All right, so that will seal up the mailbag like a big ziplock, and we are moving on. That's right. It's time for this month's audio rewind. Boy, guys, we had a lot of people write in. A lot of people got this one correct. Did we all know it? No, I did know it. No, you I did. didn't. I, you didn't know it, JT. I oh, wrote that once. So disappointing, oh, JT. Oh, man. You wrote it? Did it actually move when you were on you it? Because it never I mean. moved for me. <laughs> it was a ride well, me because I was about to It was a ride. There. Well, I consider it an attraction, JT. But let's take a listen to last month's audio rewind. Gee, it sure is dark in here. There's got to be a light around here somewhere. All right. So if you guessed Cranium Command, you are correct. That was the first couple words that Buzzy says as you're sitting in the dark and the and it just starts the attraction, starts the show. So congratulations to Lauren Sleepek. She is the winner this month. You'll be receiving the Christmas Favorites album that uh, Brian put into the pod and into the prize pot. So uh, we'll be sending that out your way. So thanks a lot for writing in, Lauren, and congratulations. 
All right, so we need a prize for this month, and uh, how you've got something you're throwing in there, right? For yes, absolutely. I have a lovely issue of Eyes and Ears of Walt Disney World, the cast member magazine. Uh, this one is dated July nineteenth, nineteen seventy-five, volume five, number twenty-nine. In case you're, you know, have a little yeah. cheat sheet at, at home. But the the cool thing about this one, uh, it's when they unveil the plans for uh, Epcot and World Showcase. Now, this isn't the Epcot and World Showcase that we know. Uh, this is the version that sort of ex- was to exist uh, off next to Bay Lake, um, where World Showcase was actually a separate facility from uh, from the other thing. So there's some nice pictures inside of like the Japanese pavilion that would uh, take guests on a bullet train, and some nice art of the Great Britain pavilion, and all kinds of cool stuff like that. So cool! All right, so you can win that if you know the answer to this month's audio rewind. If you think you know the answer to this month's audio rerun, send your guesses to podcast at retrowdw.com. All correct answers will be entered into a random drawing. For the winner, all answers should be received by February 4th, 2018. And look at this. There's, there's even a picture of someone surfing on the wave machine. In oh, that's perfect. Perfect Wait timing. Wait a second. That's, that's kind of a... I've read about this. That's that's kind of like one of the I don't want to say a holy grail, but that's sort of like one where people were like, yeah, it's featured in this eyes and ears about the wave machine. Yeah, and no. that's a picture I've never seen before of you. Well, I guess because it's in my hand, but yeah, yes, yeah. I'll scan. Scan that. Scan. And, like, I will, I will I've, scan like, this and we'll send it out for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Like I almost bought like a ton of eyes and ears to get that picture. Oh, there we go. Well. Look at that. Well, you should enter the contest, Jake. Yeah, enter, enter yes, JT. Let's see if you win next month. Yeah. I don't even know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't even made it yet. No. <laughs> All right, so we need an item to add to the prize pot. Uh, we're doing that again. We're going to do a drawing in June and in December. So, JT, what did we add to the prize pot last month? Um, first thing I have, and it's a short list, obviously, uh, yep. Epcot posters. You got it. You got it. So we're going to throw in a embroidered retro WDW hat. Putting that into the mix. Is that a retro WDW hat? Or yeah. A, oh, like one of the new own. ones. Okay. Yeah. And we're putting in something here. This is this is really cool. Uh, we're going to put one in both of the prize pots for the June and the December. But this is from Reese Miles. She made a McFarkle family Christmas card. So we're going to throw one of those in, which was absolutely awesome card. So we're going to put that in the prize pot. So if you've been following us and you like the McFarkles, and, and they're, it's great, the McFarkles are... S- sitting in the carousel of progress the oven is on fire uh it's terrific so that was that was by far my favorite christmas card of this year that was such a delight to get absolutely brilliant so thank you reese and your item is in the prize pot so again if you think you know the answer to this month's audio rewind puzzler send your guesses to podcast at retro All right. Well, it is time to get to our main topic. And as we said, this is part one of a two-part series uh, entitled Polynesian Dreams. Tonight, we're going to be taking you back to some of the original concept and ideas of the Polynesian Resort and how has been diligently researching this for at least six, seven, eight, and maybe even nine years. I don't know more than that. But in the past two weeks, he's been going crazy. He's got papers. He asked us to scan things. He's 
looking <laughs> for basically photos at, at 400 deep 4,000 DPI scanned in so he can check every pixel for any abnormalities. That's right. That's right. And, I needed uh, to count hotel rooms on renderings. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so we are going to talk about design, a potential uh, scuba tank inside the the, uh, the resort and all sorts of wacky, wacky things that came out. But uh, how? tell us a little bit about we're going turn the clocks way 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 back and yeah. uh, get started on this so uh, the idea for a polynesian style theme resort dates back to at least 1966 during the initial stages of the florida project's master planning so at that point in the property's development there's no seven seas lagoon the resort hotels are located just beyond a green belt containing golf courses and some lakes kind of to the west to the south and the east of the theme park so uh, if you think about uh, the the film that Walt made, it's like it's that big long mm. map that that's up on the wall. It's like that's that's where this development is starting, kind of in the closed doors of Wed. Uh, and- what's funny is at this point, the parking lot for the Magic Kingdom, holding ten thousand cars, is actually behind the park, not ah. in front of it, which is seems crazy. Yeah. Um, now, how is do you, do you think some of the idea for a Polynesian? Uh, resort came out of the the tiki culture that post-war tiki culture that then materialized and turned trader vicks and all that it was a big thing in the late 50s and early 60s so is this i assume it has it's got to come from some of that you know i think they're looking for um when you're looking for concepts of you know what do we do differently to sort of differentiate these hotels i mean even in all the documents that i read they actually go through great plane i'm sorry great pains to uh to actually describe what a theme resort is because that concept didn't really Mm. exist and they keep saying things like well it's it's you take a a park or you you take a resort hotel and then all the costumes and the tables and the furniture and everything inside of it either falls around a single architectural style or a single theme so they actually had to explain this idea to people and i think they were looking for something that would be different uh Mm. you know and certainly, um, they had to build a lot of hotels, so you have to differentiate one hotel from the other. So I think picking something like, you know, like a South Seas idea, there's there's definitely, you know, that desire to get away. Um, travel to Hawaii was starting to pick up in popularity in the 1950s, uh, and it was popular before, things like the Madsen hmm. Line. Um, I think there were some hotels that were starting to open up in Tahiti. So uh, if there was an affordable way for, you know, average mom and pop and the McFargles to, to take an exotic vacation, but not right. actually have to, that, that's a great way to do it. You know, and I, I also think, too, is that Disney knew from their history at Disneyland that as soon as you put something up like this, you're bound to have hotels right outside the property pop up. So if you make right. them that much more different than everything else, they're going to entice people to come in. And again, with the whole tiki culture, I mean, I even remember in, in the, the late 70s, early 80s, going into, you know, Chinese restaurants that had the c- complete Polynesia treatment done, you know, right. um, and, and that was kind of the first themed restaurants that came in the 60s. And this is, it seems to be more of a, a cutover from that, uh, an extension, and, and if it, you will. And it- it being part of a larger set of themed resorts, the uh, Asian resort and the Venetian resort with the Italian Venice theming. And so on the drawing board, it probably didn't seem that crazy to have a, an all-encompassing island Polynesia type of resort. Plus, that was also the time period where they were working on the Tiki Room mm-hmm. 
and then uh, expanding Adventureland with Pirates of the Caribbean in uh, in uh, in Disneyland. So there was a lot of that stuff on the table, which I don't want to jump on. Hal's it's almost like best a, a, research here, but I'm sure some of that's going to be incorporated into why they went with that right. theme at that spot. Well, it could have been a world it, showcase of hotels. You it's, know? Yeah, that's, <laughs> and it's certainly possible that some of the some of the ideas for the themes that were going on inside of the Magic Kingdom could spill out onto the outside too. Um, so what's really funny is, uh, so to the east of the Magic Kingdom, there were two hotels in kind of like a little pod. And both of them had extensive water features. Um, they weren't connected to Bay Lake, but Bay Lake was actually uh, like pushed way, way over, like almost by one third. Uh, like they had intended to add almost like one third more water over to Bay Lake to get it closer over to these two things. So what's really funny is when you're talking about themes. So there's there's two themed resorts that are going to have all this water stuff. You know, one is the South Seas themed resort. Uh, which is t- on the south side of this, but on the north side is what's called the Early American Theme Resort. And that is situated on a man-made Cape Cod Bay. So <laughs> you couldn't have more two things so different from each other, like adjacent. But uh, I think really the concept behind this thing is they wanted to get uh, water as part of the thing here. And and as I talked about in some of our previous episodes, Oh, and when they were setting this up as a resort facility, you know, they knew that the Magic Kingdom would likely be a one day stop for a family, uh, you know, or potentially conventioneers. So they were always looking for uh, for things that you could do that would extend uh, your vacation without having to go to the theme park multiple times because it was even back then considered expensive. So one of the things that Harrison Buzz Price pointed out to them is like things like, you know, boat rentals and horseback riding, those kind of additional type resort activities that were less expensive, you know, could help give people things to do for multiple days while they were staying at Walt Disney World since there was only one park then. So that's why they wanted to have these water activities. So like sailing and snorkeling and things like that in, in one spot. Um, now the layout of this style of resort is kind of hard to describe. We'll, we'll have pictures that you can see that'll make it a little better. But for those of you that don't have access to visuals right now, if you kind of picture a centralized parking lot leading into a main building, kind of overlooking three, three lagoons, and they kind of begin to the center and they spread out to the east and the west forming sort of a half circle. Now from these lagoons, there are canals cut back. And so those canals go deeper into the property away from the central lagoon. And then the hotel buildings kind of meander around the hotels and eventually connect to the main building. So what you have are kind of like a series of hotels radiating out like spikes. And then the hotel rooms are situated around those canals. So they're looking into the canals uh, so that way there's water view, there's water views basically no matter where you are. And then you could perhaps get into the canals and go down to like the main body of water or just walk down and, and take your stuff with you and participate in all those activities. Um, some of the other uh, of the hose, hotels uh, amenities are like restaurants and things. And those are either located on the shores of the lagoon or in the case of the restaurant actually built on piers directly over the water. So it was in concept really, really neat. Um, now, there's not any renderings of what these buildings might have looked like. These are all plans just kind of done from a top-level view. Just, I think, really kind of ideas and thought starters. Um, 
So on October 27th, 1966, you know, Walt films the now famous Epcot short film. And he's introducing the public to the concept of a Disney world, you know, consisting of the theme parks, the hotels, the working city of the future that, that you know, he calls Epcot. Uh, and in this movie, the positions of the early American themed and South Seas themed resorts have swapped. So now the early American resort is in the South and the South Seas one is in the North, which is kind of weird. Um, but what's kind of interesting at this point is the the Bay Lake waters now actually go right into the resort and Bay Lake is intermingling with all these lagoons are not separate anymore. So this this concept that we see going on later on in River Country is kind of born out here. Um, now, if you get the chance to watch the Epcot film, when Walt first appears on camera, these resorts are directly over his head. So you'll you'll see him right away. Uh, and when he starts talking about the theme parks and the hotels being developed to serve the tourists, the camera pulls back and you can clearly see these resort complexes in the film. So uh, put it on freeze frame. You can get a good look at them. It's really interesting. Yeah, we've got um, a, uh, a good, really well-restored version of that on our website, too. So great. check it out. Yeah. Um, and at one point, um, Walt walks past a panel of four renderings of some of the resort's amenities. Um, these will end up getting published later on, but you can actually see like a little picture of the uh, the Shark Lagoon and thing there. So this is 1966. Um, of course, Walt passes away in December of 66. Uh, and in 1967, then, uh, you know, the movie is shown to the public. Um, and then a book called Project Florida, A Whole New Disney World. Todd, I think you have a copy of that. I do, um, yes. Yeah. One of my favorites. So in that, uh, they publish diagrams of the resorts with descriptions of the South theme, the South Seas theme resort as being, quote, designed for enthusiasts of aquatic sports. So that's really where this whole thing is going. They're looking for something that appeals to the sportsmen. And I think uh, the South Seas theme being very water-based is then the natural way to kind of tie those things in together. So, uh, of the three lagoons, one's earmarked for swimming, one is for boating, and the other is a shark diving lagoon. <laughs> so, That's this awesome. idea of being able to dive with sharks actually stuck around through several iterations of the resort. And the concept of art for that today actually hangs in the Polynesian Resort uh, in the first floor ele elevator lobby. So, if That's you go cool. down into the elevators, there's like a really big blow up. Uh, of the art that was done for that. I think it was John Hench, but I'm not positive. That's cool. Uh, and it's and, very, very cool. And again, old things don't die. Where did that eventually end up? Typhoon yes. Lagoon. Yeah. Typhoon Lagoon. So how about that? Um, there's another rendering uh, that shows a concept for a water slide fed by a waterfall, uh, which no. does get built, just no not way. in kind of <laughs> the same way. But yeah, I mean, they were really thinking of the, of of things that if if they didn't show up uh if they didn't show up at the hotel they they did end of, end up showing up later on well and that that's a huge draw too i mean if you think about hotels at the time the pool was just a concrete square or a concrete rectangle and right. one of those blue fiberglass slides that probably had no water running down it you'd burn your bum going down and you know that was it so yeah and although the lagoon looks really small for water sports, uh, I've actually seen several like smallish lagoons, like in the back of the um, the Hawaiian Village Hotel in in uh, on um, Oahu. There's actually mm -hmm. like a little small lagoon where the people that do the rentals 
of like little sail cats and boats and things. It's like they're all in there kind of protected from the ocean. And even <laughs> this is so strange at that celebrity sports center that Disney owned uh, in the 1960s and 1970s, yeah. they actually had like large fans downstairs on the pool and they would put kids in little sailboats and have them sail <laughs> in the pool there. Dick Nunes tested that just so you know. Yeah. Just so, <laughs> so it's, it's totally practical. Um, so all these plans, though, would radically change in the fall of 1967. Uh, borings and soil tests come back. Yeah. And, and they and, decide instead of a parking lot to build Seven Seas Lagoon. Right. Because the land that they had designated for all this stuff was actually un- unbuildable. So by the spring of 1968, they actually come up with the idea to build the Seven Seas Lagoon and, and finalize what that's going to look like. And all the, all the resorts, before the resorts um, that that were not water-based were actually just going to be in little pods facing each other. So that way it'd facilitate getting to them by one way people mover. Well, now the resorts are all spread out across the waterfront and everybody's got a nice water view. So, so that's, that's quite lovely. Um, so around this time, um, Disney also contracts Welton Beckett and associates to start designing the resort hotel. So they're, they're getting from the, we know we're going to have some resorts, but we don't know what they are to actually trying to put some hard designs down. Um, Welton Beckett worked with Disney at the 64 World's Fair to design the Carousel of Progress building. Uh, and he was also good friends with Walt Disney. So it was probably a, a, just a real easy thing to, to hire them to do that. And it was it was more than Wed could likely handle at the time. Uh, and Wed wasn't really good at hotels. They didn't they had never done hotels. The Disneyland Hotel was owned by the Rather Corporation. So they just didn't have the logistics down of what you needed to be able to build a hotel. Um, at that time, we see a new master plan. And what is now referred to as a Polynesian-style resort features a 12-story tower at a center with sweeping wings and a set of smaller lower buildings connected to the east and west, with a majority of buildings situated around a half-circle lagoon carved out and approximately kind of where the ferry boats dock today at the Transportation and Ticket Center. And if you want to see this model, you can go to Michael Crawford's website, Progress City USA, and we'll include a link to that in the show notes. It's a really rare thing, and it was really cool for him to find that and publish it. Uh, and what's also kind of astounding is the other hotels being planned at this stage look nothing like any of the hotels that we know about that were going to be there. So, like, you don't see the Asian and it's like you have these very modern hotels that kind of look like a fountain blue and like just bizarre. So this tower design uh, seems very unusual compared to the Polynesian resort that we've come to know and love. So to understand the style, I think what we have to do is look at what was going on at the same time in the real Polynesia, particularly in Hawaii, um, where for the first time, uh, the big island of Hawaii and Maui were seeing development by large state-sized hotelers. And they were pushing bold modern designs that highlighted more of Hawaii's natural beauty than sort of the romanticized fantasy of grass shacks and things. How, do, how does uh, 90 degree angles show the beauty of hawaii though well a a lot of these hotels uh were built up on uh well i'll actually let me get into that so uh the man who's probably most responsible for the trend is a guy named pete wembley he's from the architecture firm of wembley white sand allison and tong now they had built the coco palms hotel on Kauai that was famous for being the location of elephus's 1961 movie blue hawaii Mm -hmm. um and they also built the Hotel Bora Bora in Tahiti, which consisted of thatched huts, 
perched on stilts over the water. Now, remember those two hotels, because when we're in part two, uh, we'll go back and reference those because they, they kind of end up coming back again. But by the 1960s, Wembley was actually trying to explore new styles for a Hawaiian resort, rejecting the old grass, that, uh, grass shack style and also the plain stacked boxes, which sprang up on the shores of Waikiki and Oahu in the 1950s. Um, his 1963 design of the Sheraton Maui Resort was the first to marry the idea of modernism and Hawaiian culture. And by January of 1968, the Kona Hilton was built with 192 rooms with a slope tower sort of epitomizing this ideal. So two things that, that he felt was really important was to try to use as much of the natural surrounding as, as possible. So if you were, were building a hotel on a rocky cliff, it's like you wanted to make sure that you could like raise the hotel high enough that people could actually get a great view of the water and also the surroundings around it. So his big thing was, you know, take what was available uh, in the area and, you know, showcase the heck out of the natural beauty there, um, but still make the, the building as modern and classy as possible. Uh, and also to try to, to integrate some elements of Hawaiian culture into it so this is the first time that you're seeing somebody not just like slapping up you know just a generic hotel uh in the middle of an area out there but but actually trying to look at what's going on and uh and integrate that with that um so i, fi I find it interesting because you know some of the renderings especially that black and white one that looks like you 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 took a uh, uh aztec pyramid and you took a slice out of it right, right. and i find it's... it very interesting that it's so similar to what the contemporary is in a different in a, a different way to see something that that's nearly identical just in different geometric form um I, th I thought was interesting and that's and that's really kind of the point that we'll get into you know the polynesian resort was not meant to be you know like a bucolic vision of what polynesia was or some kind of historical reproduction it was always intended to be a very modern you know of the now resort that happened to have some South Seas flair to it. Um, what's really funny is if you look at the Kona Hilton, um, when we'll I'll have to have some links to that too, it bears a very strong resemblance to what um, they were planning to build uh, at Disney in this 1969 version. So if somebody, you know, it's either a heck of a coincidence that both of the buildings ended up kind of looking the same way with the two wings coming out to the sides or they pretty much took the basic idea and copied it um and it was a really successful hotel this Kona hilton it cost five million dollars to build in 1968 which was a boatload of money um it was seven stories tall as opposed to the, the polynesians 12 story design at that point um but it was a smash success. It had an occupancy rate of over 85% in its first year, and it ended up setting the standard for future resort developments uh, in the Hawaiian Islands for years and years. And that um, that design group went on to do resort hotels not only all over Hawaii, but like all over Asia and, and the Pacific as well. It's It was really a smash hit. But let's get back to our Polynesian resort. So on April 30th, 1969, my first birthday... Um, Walt Disney World held a press conference to show the public for the first time real specifics about what was being built at Disney World. The earlier ones were just kind of like, hey, we're here, we're going to do something, and, you know, let's 
let's have fun with this. So at the Ramada in Tower Hotel in Okoe, um, they showed a huge model of the Walt Disney World project. Uh, and also they did a variety of press releases with their partners. Uh, and they distributed a lot of photographs and stuff to the reporters that were assembled from around the country. I think there was something like between 300 and 500 reporters that were flown in. So there were, there were people from everywhere uh, to come to look at this. So uh, that day they showed a more detailed model of the property. Uh, and the Polynesian Resort in that version was constructed mostly using the 1968 version of the hotel as a guide, but the configuration was now flipped, so the circular lagoon and the buildings were located to the west of the towers and the smaller buildings to the northeast, um, with views either overlooking the Seven Seas Lagoon or a bunch of man-made lagoons and pools that were inside the property. So this is what you see on the cover of like a lot of the, uh, the, like the pictorial souvenir guides where right, it's got right. the red roof. You know what's what's interesting of the older the older rendition when you had that crescent moon it's it's very reminiscent of what the Copper Creek Canyon uh, and also the bungalows are today. Mm-hmm. You know it's it's really interesting. It's taken all these years to get to what they may have originally envisioned. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the announcement that I think had the biggest effect on what would happen with this was the fact that U.S. Steel was partnering with Disney and Welton Beckett to build the hotels using modular construction. Um, it's well known that the contemporary was built with this technique. JT, what's what's the favorite phrase? Like a chest of drawers. That's right. There we are. Um, but U.S. Steel was going to do the same thing with the Polynesian style resort, except instead of sliding them in, they would stack them up. So what's our um, what's our new like oh like milk crates? What do we use here? <laughs> <laughs> we need a. <laughs> what, it's it's what like the, you, you may metaphor? be familiar with the chest of drawers concept, but you know at the Polynesian we decided to stack them like milk crates. <laughs> stack, <laughs> we need something catchy. Stack them like a U-Haul like, truck. All right, this is this is a contest. Here's what we're going to do. You know how chest of drawers has caught on. Uh, so we want you to write in with your best ideas of how to describe stacking hotel rooms rather than sliding them in like a chest of drawers so send send in to podcasts at retro com, and who knows you might you might be lucky enough to create the next uh next metaphor for for what we use on the show to me the most interesting twist to this relationship with u.s steel and and disney is that u.s steel actually started a whole new unit of its, of its company for the venture the uss realty development division contracted to lease the land from disney they were to own the hotels, but then they were to license the operation of the hotels back to a newly um, created company, like within the Disney organization. And if you remember, uh, you know, like I said before, Disney didn't have any experience with hotels. The the Rather Corporation owned the Disneyland Hotel, so they they didn't have much expertise in in hotel operations at the time. And really, the whole point of this weird relationship was for Disney was for Disney to have someone else finance the construction of the hotels because they simply you know were running out of cash and and didn't know what to do. So they were hoping you know U.S. Steel would pick up the bag and also you know do the building and they would just be able to run it. And let's admit, U.S. Steel. I mean, we talked about this when we talked uh, when we went had the contemporary episode. I mean, they thought this was the wave of the future. They yep. built these two hotels using this technique. And um, later on, they they wound up producing some additional prefab things out of that facility, and I think eventually went into creating toilets and bathrooms or something like that as well. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, 
it didn't work out for them as they had planned either. Yeah. So the press release that came out that day by U.S. Steel describes the Polynesian theme hotel as having a total of 1,090 rooms. Now, that's more than the contemporary ended up with. So this would have been a huge project. Yeah, that's massive. Um, 250 of the hotel rooms would have a private garden patio. The other 840 would be identically constructed and located in the resort's annex facilities. So those are the ones that would have been churned out, uh, you know, each and you know, uh, on the sort of the production line. Um, each room was promised a water view. So no matter what room you stayed at of this hotel, you had a water view. There was no tier. Wait a minute. So what did they get? Do rooms on the back with just giant mirrors? <laughs> <laughs> so, so the way that that tower was configured, the elevator shaft was in the back. You would go up. So the parking lot, that faced the back of the parking lot. So you would walk in, you'd go up the elevator shaft, and then your um, your hotel hallways would open up into the room, and then they would be a straight shot, like looking out at the water. Just essentially, if you cut the contemporary in half. Basically, yeah, that's that's, that's exactly what it was. Yeah, um, and then all of the outbuildings would be configured. Uh, in one direction or another to either point out to the lake or like some of the artificial uh, water that they had built there. But this concept that you would see water everywhere was, was a big you know, deal to them. The Grand Volcano Concourse just has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, they may not have had a Grand Volcano Concourse, but they would have had a top of the world because part of the plan was a South Seas dining room located at the top of the hotel. Um they also were going to have a scuba diving pool, so that idea, maybe without the sharks, was still hanging around. Uh, and a health club. Uh, and interesting, there's a a um, one piece of artwork from that day, which I think we've all seen, because it also got turned into a postcard of two cranes flying over the property. Uh, and on that one, the longhouses are in a completely different configuration than the model that we see. They actually look like the longhouses that ended up getting built, and they're more or less situated where the ones that did get built ended up. So this might have been the first time when um, you start to see the reality of how U.S. Steel's construction would work with the Welton Beckett design, and they tried to find sort of like this halfway point. One thing that does show up in, in both these plans, though, which is fascinating, is right on the water's edge are these private circular bungalows. So that was a concept that was actually went back as far as 1968, 1969 that didn't happen until just a couple of years ago. That's so cool. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so each of the, the unitized rooms were 29 feet long, 14 feet wide and could sleep up to five people. The powder rooms were oversized by the day standards and included double sinks, which I think was pretty hard. Did, did you have to pay for the fifth person, though? <laughs> you know what was also really weird is, as Tom Nabby told us, and uh, and actually I saw this. I've seen this reiterated in other hotel books too from the time period. Is like the average family that stayed, uh, like the average booking for a hotel back then was like one point five people. So <laughs> all the stuff that was built you know like the sizes of the waiting rooms and the ideas of the restaurants and all that stuff was was built around that even though the rooms were built to accommodate like much more people yeah that's right he he, remember he told us that about them ordering all the food and the weights of the elevators and everything were based on this calculation not taking into account that most hotels were used for business travelers 
uh, or people visiting, fa- you know, the family vacations weren't what hotels were really built for yeah. back then. And so nobody said, well, we're encouraging mom and dad and the two kids to come. Let's plan for that. Yeah, I, I read uh, something and I don't want to get talk about the contemporary, but they would say I read something where they'd have like a thousand people show up and expect to eat breakfast at like 8 a.m. And there's no capacity to do that, even in the early days. You know, it's, it's really amazing too. safety standards, obviously, back then, not what they are today. But think about that. You know, if, if you're based on 1.5, yet you have the theoretical capacity of five in every room. You know, not just the logistical, but you got massive, you know, massive uh, safety safety hazard on your hands. Well, it's a lot of a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so by time the book lit a complete edition about Walt Disney World, and I think Todd, you might have one of those too. I can't remember. I do. Um, in fact, I have the very rare version that still has the memo that's paper clipped to the very first page, <laughs> encouraging people in the corporation who whoever received this. Uh, to pass it around because there's not many copies available. And the, oh, wow. the paperclip is kind of rusted in. Uh, and it's, it's a really cool little addition. I've never seen one that has uh, the additional memo attached to it. Cool. Well, the, ru- um, the rusty paperclip is uh, historically significant. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> How's going to create get a te- drink at our next event called the, the Rusty, rusty, rusty Paper, paper Clip? I like that. Oh, yes, please. You will not get tetanus, we promise. <laughs> what a thing. Um, so in that particular pamphlet, the hotel is now officially billed as the Polynesian, the place to stay for sports enthusiasts, kind of what I think you were talking about, Todd. Can't claim that anymore because now it's the all-star sports resort. <laughs> the, uh, the number of rooms drops to 700 with roughly one third, uh, so t- about 230 placed in the tower. But at least all 700 rooms are still promised the water view. So don't worry, the water view's still there, at least for the next five minutes. Um, <laughs> but by the end of 1969, uh, plans for that hotel changed radically. Um, although the tower mo- version of the Polynesian is still shown in some publications. Uh, when you read text descriptions and look at illustrations that are sort of deeper in the reports, uh, you get a description for a completely different kind of resort. Uh, in the 1969 Disney Annual Report, the the corporate one, the total number of rooms at the Polynesian are now down to 508, and it's described as a quote low-rise vacation village design. The uh, the Polynesian's main dining room was to overlook a skin diving and water sports grotto, but the rooms are now said to either look across the lagoon to the Magic Kingdom theme park or toward Walt Disney World's golf course complex. Uh, and this is when we first start to see, you know, what we know as the Great Ceremonial House and these like long houses that were kind of roughed in in that other design now. Yeah. starting to come together and the top um, of the world that they had became the papi bay veranda so yeah instead of being 17 stories up where it was we're now we're not two <laughs> it's it's two um in the 1970 preview edition of the walt disney world pictorial souvenir uh that thing that was distributed at the preview center uh it's still got the big tower on the cover i guess that model must have been like too good to to give up well um, was that the, also too were they going to even the model at the preview center did they redo the physical model not a, i don't think they did at that point yeah no, so i mean we you're actually print, had, print and hand things out that, that yeah that match um so now we see for the first time a colored line drawing 
of what we know as the Great Ceremonial House at the center of the property with the rectangular marina to the east and the longhouses with the with the hotel rooms arranged kind of on a grid system to the east and west of the main lobby. Uh, the description says uh, it's a little more subdued now. They say guests will play tennis under the palms, swim in tropical pools with cascading waterfalls, lounge in the sun on white sandy beaches, or go sailing practically from the doorstep of the rooms. Uh, golfers may warm up on a huge shoreline putting green. So it seems like all of the grandeur of the resort plans were slipping away, either as a result of financial burden or maybe the technical limitations of the modular construction techniques or, or just maybe uh, the deadline to have the resort open in the fourth quarter of 1971. So, Brian, I know you know a little bit about the U.S. Steel relationship and how that ended up going sour. Uh, so could you kind of talk about that? Yeah, so... Really, as they started to work on the Polynesian, actually both hotels, um, the pacing was not going right. A lot of stuff was not going right. And as Walt often did with his early vendors at Disneyland, um, when something wasn't working out, they would just take it over. And so there was a point where they elected to take the project over from U.S. Steel and finish the two hotels, uh, bringing in their own third-party vendor to, to finish the job. At the same time, it's probably worth mentioning, you, you already mentioned they had no experience running hotels. So Disney's solution to this was to lease the Holiday Inn uh, out on 192, I think it was. And uh, they put Sully Sullivan uh, in charge of it. Uh, they told him, go learn how to run a hotel. So they hired some hotel industry guys to work with the Disney people. Uh, and they spent uh, something like, I think they had a total of 18 months uh, to, to, to run the thing. And uh, Disney put their people out there to try to figure out how to run the kitchen and run the housekeeping and run the front desk and figure out how to run a hotel. And then they moved all those people over to the Polynesian and the Contemporary. And then the Holiday Inn people, the guy that owned the Holiday Inn, ended up suing them, saying that they were uh, losing money on purpose and had spent a bunch of money uh, by sending the housekeepers and and uh, caterers and all out to the five houses that they owned in Bay Hill, where Roy Disney and Joe Fowler and those guys all had houses when they would come to town. Uh, so there's a whole little legal back and forth that went on there after the fact. But uh, yeah, so they basically, their solution to figuring out the hotel industry was to lease a hotel and run it for 18 months. Yeah. So finally in 1971, sometime the resort gets an official name, the Polynesian Village. Uh, amazingly, the site had been cleaned and prepped for at least a year, but construction on the resort didn't actually begin until February of 1971. <laughs> that's a miracle <laughs> i mean they had they had guessed seven months later here's the crazy thing it was actually complete in august of 71 four months wow now that's probably due to the fact that the great ceremonial house including the you know the, that building that houses the lobby and the restaurants and the adjacent outrigger assembly house that has the retail space and and more restaurants they they're just big empty steel boxes i mean there's not a lot yeah, I mean, going you just, on. Just coat it in asbestos and you're done, right? I mean, that's, yeah, yeah, you you know, 
put it to the ground floor, you know, throw some stuff in and it's, and it's good to go. Um, but really maybe it was the prefabricated hotel rooms being stacked in place by cranes that really made that go quick. Cause four months is astounding. Well, if you think, I mean, how, how, we don't know how quickly they were churning those rooms out. Um, and, and what the contemporary was, you know, what condition it was in by the time they started that. I mean, so they, that whole thing, making the rooms could have been wrapped up, you know, and, yeah. and those rooms may have been even further finished uh, than the ones at the contemporary. I mean, remember they always say, all you have to do is plug in the plumbing and the, and yeah, the electricity. There was, there's, so. I've seen a picture of the, of the facility where they built the rooms that has what looks like 500 units, like sitting outside, like ready to get trucked away. Yeah. So and we shared uh, we shared uh, photos sent to us by one of our listeners a few months back on Twitter of uh, he got into the DC six building where they built those rooms, um, which is still on property, and the rail tracks that they used to wheel them out of the the building facility and load them onto the truck to run them over to either the Contemporary or the Polynesian those rail tracks are still in the ground in that building uh, from when they built that. And so there's a couple of, he points out a couple of spots where they are on, on the thing. So we sent some stills of that out. We'll have to yeah. add them to the article for the episode. There's a great photo of the construction where it's one of the famous, I shouldn't say famous, but the one that circulated on the internet a lot of the, uh, it's a black and white one. I'll share it with here with you guys. Um, we'll include it in the notes. I mean, and if you look at it, I mean, there is really no, other support structure when you think about it um there's the one there's all the rooms are stacked in the foreground and they're literally just dropping these things in place like lego so there's your cue right there how in the foreground those are all the rooms ready to go those aren't that isn't a long building yeah that is that's That's, the cue (laughs) i i think really all they had to do was you know put Attach them together, like run the hallway between them. Yeah. Because I don't think the hallway was part of it. And then stick the roof on top. Exactly. But it was, I mean, it was probably quite elegant and simple to do that. And and as we've talked about, the rooms were fully furnished. The yeah. wallpaper was on. The furniture was in place. It was yep. like they hooked I, I, up the power. They hooked I, up the plumbing. And that I think, was it. I think Nabby went so far as to tell us the toiletries were like the bars of soap and shampoo. They was all ready to go. Like they yeah. just... Literally just had to plug it in. And one of the things that I just read, because uh, I think we had talked about, like, what about the lamps and things? Because wouldn't that all get shuck around? And um, they actually didn't have any freestanding lamps or desk lamps in the rooms when they first debuted. All of the lighting was either canned and in the ceiling or behind the bed and then shot, uh, like, indirectly uh, from behind the bed onto the ceiling and down. Yep. And they actually got a bunch of complaints about that when the resort opened because people weren't used to it. Um, <laughs> apparently, whoever designed the room, they were kind of freaked out about things like, you know, they were used to seeing uh, like dirty lampshades and things in hotels. So they were trying to avoid all of that by using all this this newfangled lighting and stuff. And it sounds like it was a really cool idea. Yeah. But, and let's also too remember that, that there were only, what, six longhouses originally? Right? Is that what it was? Uh Eight, actually. Eight, okay. So yeah. not the, what is it, 12 that we have today? Yeah, so, it's much, much, much smaller. So smaller, yeah. Yeah. And there so is a big difference if, if people want to know. If you if you walk the newer ones, which are now the, some of the DVC, um, you can tell the difference because actually the hallway width is completely different. They were oh. built to different standards. So if you if you ever walk like uh, 
I think Pago Pago or something like that, yeah. um, compare that to Hawaii or the form it was used to be called Bora Bora, the real small one. Hallways are extremely narrow, but if you go into the uh, the, the ones that were built in the later 70s, much wider. Hmm. So to your point, when, when the Polynesian Village Resort finally opened, uh, it had six suites and 478 guest rooms. Uh, spread across eight long longhouses with names like Tahiti, Fiji, Samoa, Tonga, Hawaii, Bora Bora, Maui, and for no particular reason, Bali High. <laughs> <laughs> Which so was that? Were, that was the that was the the the, uh, the suites, right? I think so. Yeah. So they were all named after islands, with the exception of one that was named after a mythological uh, place from the musical south pacific which probably would have been well known to everyone at that time but today makes probably not much sense to everyone it didn't have a pool that you could swim with sharks in but it did have a pretty cool swimming pool and a golf putting green in the back um and i guess that probably had a lot to do with the constricted timeline but you know it was still a beautiful resort so bali high how was the only building that was not built using the chest of drawers techniques if you look at the if you uh -huh. look at the construction, it's the the suites, and there's a couple construction photos, especially in, in the, the Magic of Walt Disney World book or whatever it is, uh, where you can see it's a standard stick frame construction inside with, with a um, steel outer shell. So Bali High did differ because it was it was built differently, and it featured the suites and not the regular guest rooms. I think there's one where you actually can look down into it before the yes. roof's been put on, right? Yes, yeah. that's, the, that's the one I'm referring to, which is it's, it's from the, uh, uh, the book you mentioned earlier. All right, so next time in part two of the show, uh, we'll explore the hotel's features. We'll talk about its design philosophy, including its smiling mascot, one of my favorite things. Uh, and we'll also highlight some of the food and drink you would have experienced at the resort. And then we'll discuss how it's expanded and changed uh, several times from 1971 to the present. And we're also working on getting some special guests that, uh, let's say they had some performances and they did some things at the resort. We're not going to get into too much detail, but we're going to work to get them on the show as well. So it should be, should be an interesting one. Yeah, there was quite a lot of, quite a lot of entertainment going on there. For, That's right. Uh, and, you know, to our listeners, this is a great opportunity. We don't do two-part episodes a lot. And um, this is a great opportunity. Hopefully we, you know, we whet your appetite here for more and you're going to have questions. So please write in anything specific uh, that you want to hear to podcast at retrowdw.com. And uh, we'll definitely talk about it and see if we can get that, get that info, information out to you. So thank you very much, Hal. Appreciate it. And uh, I'm looking forward to next month and uh, see what else you uncover and ultimately talk about the original lava pool because I remember being there. Asbestos and the smell of the lobby we'll talk about. Right. <laughs> the, <way that laughs> the lobby. That's right. All right. So with that, before we wrap up, uh, we always like to talk a little bit about the different things that we offer. Um as you know, on RetroWW.com, we've got some films. We talked about one uh, earlier tonight. The, you'll see the Eastern Winds, which used to moor over at the uh, Polynesian Resort. So it's definitely take a look. And uh, we've got some other ones. Uh, over the Christmas holiday, we did release the Pageantry and Glory of Christmas. Um, Art and Linda made their re-debut and yeah, came back. And be, believe it or not, guys, there's still more Art and Linda yet to but be We're still unveiled, looking for so. them and to solve that mystery. <laughs> That's true. We are. We are. So... Um, 
All right, and as always, we'd like to talk about some of the merchandise that we have uh, at our shop. So you can go to retrowdwdw.com forward slash support us. Now, how we, we added a few things for the holidays. We put the Epcot ornament back in, and you also had what we titled Ugly EO. Why don't you tell everybody a little bit Ugly EO? I know it's past the holiday season, and we'll see what else you have in store, but tell, tell them what Ugly EO is. Well, pe- hopefully people will find this for next Christmas then, because we kind of dropped that one in at the end. Yeah. So, you know, right now the, the ugly sweater thing is is all the rage. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so well, much so I that Brian say, Brian just loves that part of Christmas, the ugly uh, ugly sweater. Right, Brian? I am morally opposed to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, you know what? I, I get where you're coming from. It's like at one point I'm sure it was funny to like raid someone's your parents' closet and pull out sweaters that were actually ugly out of fashion <laughs> yeah. and wear them places. But now it's just turned into this whole sort of cottage industry in and amongst itself but nevertheless we joined that bandwagon <laughs> that's right let's ride that wave machine right to the shore <laughs> so, so, we'll so yes you can so you can uh you will find a design uh with a uh, michael jackson as captain eo uh all done in in thread uh with the the special holiday message we are here to say to change the world that's right uh, so let's make a lovely addition to your uh to your holiday attire now, don't feel that you have to order these nine, ten months in advance because Howe is not sitting there actually crafting each one out of thread. They are silkscreen printed, so let's just get that straight. That how how doesn't crochet or knit or anything in his spare time. So, but if you but if you want to order it now, that's fine too. Yeah, yeah, you can order. Well, um, with Christmas with in this July. Being, that's right. That's right. Oh yeah, Christmas in July. Well, with this being the Polynesian episode, I absolutely have to do some Polynesian designs because I mean, let's face it, that's one of my favorite things anyway and, and there's plenty of historical nooks and crannies to uh mm-hmm. to explore here so and let's mm-hmm. don't forget to our listeners we got the we have already have the wave machine shirt which is one of that's our right. best selling t-shirts ever still um, one of my favorites and you know i have one we, we pre-distressed it to look like you know the imprint has, has gone through the wash many times mine is distressing even more and it still it just looks up double awesome because it was pre-distressed and now it is distressed it's fading fast and i i, I love it so uh, check out the, the newness wave machine t-shirt. It's one of the best. So um, who knows? Maybe maybe how we'll come up with something with Bob around uh, something with the great. Oh man, Bob! There's so many great stuff. Yeah. You know, there's there was Trader Jack's upstairs. Mm-hmm. That was their liquor store. We had Bob around boats. We had there's so much material to work from. Just a, how about a torch? Just a torch on it. <laughs> yeah, gas, gas lamp torch. So, all right. Well, how we'll be looking for your uh your your latest designs and we'll get those up there as soon as possible so check it out at retrowdw.com forward slash support us all right guys so with that we know where we're going next month we're coming back to the polynesian for part two and uh with that i want to thank all of our listeners as always for tuning in and listening to us uh if you can give us a shout out on itunes or google play or wherever you listen to us and uh, again, if you have any questions, comments, give us a shout at podcast at retrowdw.com. And uh, don't forget our, our audio line. You can leave us a message at 978-71-RETRO. You've got up to two minutes to tell us a little bit about what you've got going on or what you remember about Disney. Uh, send us your memories, and we'll see to get you on the air. So, All right. Well, aloha, everybody from the South Seas, and uh, we'll see you next month. And with that, Brian, take us out. Follow Todd McCartney and Retro WDW on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Retro WDW. 
for all things Retro Disney World, including exclusive merchandise, visit us on the web at RetroWDW.com. On Twitter, follow our web designer, Jason Bartell of Deepwater Studios, at JasonDWS. Our announcer, Andre Gardner, at Andre Gardner. And follow our hosts, Hal Bowers, on Twitter and Instagram, at GoAwayGreen. And on the web, at KingdomOfMemories.com. For JT Couser on Twitter, at LS1JT. On YouTube, at Rubber City Motoring. And on the web, at RubberCityMotoring.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at Brian P. Miles. Oh, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like,